You're listening to the Code 4 Podcast. Whatever, 25, you've had it. Code 4. Here we go, 4, 11, 4. Welcome to the third episode of the Code 4 Podcast. It was recorded March 8th, 2021, and it does contain some explicit language. In this episode, we are going to go on the dispatch side of the radio with Karina Putnam. She gives a very honest look into the job of a 911 dispatcher and the effects of vicarious trauma, which she describes as absorbing body blows that are happening to somebody else. The job changed her for the worse in terms of her physical health and her spirit. Karina talks about the steps she has taken to improve her health, her outlook on life, and what's next for her as she works towards becoming a counselor for first responders. My thanks to her for this insightful interview and for her work at Code 4 Northwest as a volunteer call receiver. So now, we'll get to it. Hello everybody, this is Jeff Richards and I'm sitting with Karina Putnam and she is a dispatcher at Valley Communications and is also a Code 4 volunteer. So hello. Hi. It's uh, my pleasure to be here visiting with you. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Well, so let's start with your background and the things that you're doing now. Okay. Well, I, I you know, I'm I'm one of the old school folks. I got, I'm one of the, I was the last class that got hired, quote, in the old building. <laughs> and only people in the Valley will probably understand what that is. But Valleycom used to be a tiny little agency at the top of the hill in Kent. And it was this... Um, the call receivers were sitting in a conference room. There were eight of them. <laughs> and then the dispatchers were across in a different room. Um, and I think there were eight radios, nine maybe. <clears throat> and when I got hired in 2002, we switched to the new building that's um, at the top of the hill with the radio tower. So I've been a dispatcher since 2002. I took a five-year break Um in the middle of all that and returned in 2010. And, and your break was for? <clears throat> well, it was to go back to school and it ended up being to have a baby and okay. get married. <laughs> all right, congrats. <laughs> Thank you. She's she's a, a delight and I'm really grateful to like be a mom. That's kind of great. Okay. I, it was not it was not something I had ever really necessarily, I like thought that that would be part of my life. So yeah. it's a total bonus. So, yeah, I came back. Um, I my other professional experience outside of being a dispatcher is I'm an event planner. So I worked in um, the restaurant industry, large scale events, um, planning like convention parties and things like that. But during the financial crisis in two thousand eight and nine, like our industry contracted by. A measurable amount. So I'm mm-hmm. like, well, my mortgage company wants their money every month. I should get a different job. And Valleycom was hiring and I counted as a lateral. So they fast tracked me right back in. And here we are. Here you are. <laughs> well, what's it like being on that side of the, of the phone and microphone? It is, um, it is, it's a many, it's many things. It's, it's primarily the most fulfilling work I've ever done. You're taking, you have a personal connection with the people who need help first. And we have to take chaos and translate it into 
a language that the responders can sort out and prioritize. And that's pretty complex, especially in our area where, you know, Valleycom covers every city south of the, of the borders of Seattle, um, with a few exceptions, but, and most of the fire departments from Seattle to the Pierce County line, Vashon to the foothills of the Cascades. So that encompasses a pretty diverse area with a tremendous amount of um, different languages spoken, disparities in resources, uh, populations. Many times that if you're coming to Washington State from someplace else, especially if you're immigrating to the U.S. and you land here, very commonly you will end up on the Pacific Highway South Corridor or at least you did for a long, long time. So those communities reflect the world conflict like removed. So for example, I went to Foster High School in Tukwila and when I was in school, we had a tremendous influx of folks coming in from um, Bosnia and Serbia and reflecting the conflict that had happened a few years prior. Oh, right. As my brothers went to school, there was a huge Kurdish population that exploded as well as um, a a growth in um, East African refugees here. And it changed, it changes over time where people are leaving from someplace else and going someplace new, they end up in our Valley. So it's, it's been a, an eye opening understanding of how emergency services work because when I started I thought really truly and I I grew up in Tukwila (laughs) I thought I was calling the Tukwila police station and there was somebody with a pad and pencil taking my information and like sending somebody out to do the thing like hey Joe can you go handle this thing I really had no concept that 911 as a service was a distinct entity away from the fire department or the police department. I really had no clue. Yeah, and there there were some areas, like I started at Angle Lake, uh-huh. and we were dispatchers as residents. Right. And so that's my limited experience to being on that side of it. But yeah, people called a local number. Yes. And didn't have 911 service. Right. <laughs> I know, and I was like, it was very eye-opening in the very beginning. And then I've been there um, basically through the digital age transition. So what it means to text 911 what it means to, we were there for um, the advent of cell phones being the primary point of contact for emergencies and what it means to not be able to figure out where somebody is. There are stories upon stories of heroic dispatchers helping to narrow down where somebody is without the aid of technology to then get an address to enter the call for assistance. All of this work happens before anybody gets a tone <laughs> yeah. or a dispatch. So I am amazed by the depth of knowledge and skill set, the soft skills that happen when you're trying to deal with people and get them to do what you need them to do when they're panicked and terrified. You sit in that room and you just be amazed at what call receivers can get out of somebody who's panicking. Well, yeah, in a very stressful situation. Deeply. <laughs> and then add all the technological mm-hmm. changes that you've been dealing with over the years. It's oh, yeah. Incredible. And it's a, it's a <laughs> I I jokingly refer to my non-emergency friends that what 911 is is it's a high wire act with knives and fire <laughs> like in no net. You, we have a 0% margin of error. If I make a mistake, 
I could, someone could die, you or somebody else responding or the citizen who's called, like it, my mistake, my, anything I do that's not perfect can have a deeply negative consequence. And so we really, we really are, you do that 10 hours a day. 12 hours a day, 14 hours, we can, we can be mandated up to 12 and you have the option to stay till 14 if you choose. Do that over a period of years. It, it sharpens the edges of a person and it changes who you are. And we're learning a lot now about what that means. And that's really a lot of trauma. It's called vicarious trauma, where you absorb the body blows of the stuff happening to somebody else and then you don't have time to process it because 30 seconds later there's another call and there's no time to stop and think oh my gosh what just happened because that's not our job our job isn't to think about what just happened it's to handle what's happening and deal with what's happening next it's happening now yes yeah and you can't send 911 to voicemail (laughs) (laughs) that just doesn't work nope So Karina, what kind of things did you feel within yourself as you've been doing this job? I I, I would say it's an arc of change. Like initially, there's something really just exciting about knowing what's going on and having a sense of, well, it's not like that. I can explain to you. Let me tell you. I'm the I'm the expert in this situation. Like that 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 sense of exhilaration about knowing where the lights and sirens are going and what's happening on the inner circles of things. That faded pretty quickly for me. Um, it, it's pretty deeply sad when you think about what it is that we experience. There's, you have to take a really um, active role against being overwhelmed by the need. Because like any system, the 911 system can't save everybody. There isn't enough, like there, the need is greater than the resource and it always will be. So we have to we have to learn how to triage pain. And if you aren't actively talking about what it is that you're doing, which is triaging somebody's needs that way, you can become very hardened. And like, can we swear on this podcast? I didn't ask you that. Yes, we can. Okay. <laughs> because a lot of I, I can say it really truly, I the change in me was how much I swear. Or it used to be like, fuck this, fuck you, fuck that guy, that guy's a bitch or whatever, you know, all of these things that would never have come out of my mouth before were just natural. And I didn't, it, I was, you're in, we're steeped in it. And people like I say 911 and the first thing is somebody screaming and calling me a cunt. And you're like, homie, I just said 911. How can you be mad about that? Like yeah. I didn't do it yet. But the 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 reality is I haven't actually taken calls very often. I went immediately toward like as soon as we were trained, I was on a radio. So the per, the time I take calls is to cover when we don't have enough call receivers. Most of the time I'm on a police or fire radio handling 
the second wave of the emergency response, which is directing traffic and paying attention to what's coming in and keeping track of details and running names and running plates and calling toes and calling AMBs and, you know, all the, the stuff behind the scenes that happens that is kind of invisible. But the the personal change for me was it got very like night shift working weekends means you're separated from normal people a lot. And I just got lonesome. It was, I was married and a mom working 10 p.m. till 8 in the morning for five years. Not five years, it was three. And then I worked eight, eight, 6 p.m. till 4 a.m. And it's, you get deeply in your head. And I got depressed. I had, um, like, you start thinking about like every, every like humanity itself is dark and everything's bad. And <laughs> you, ha- I, I didn't exercise enough. I didn't get outside in fresh air enough. It's just this, it's this cascading s- series of spirals away from health. And I didn't see it happening. It was just invisible to me. I didn't see until I saw a picture of myself and I was like, whoa. I, I looked different. I looked tired and I looked angry and I needed to figure out how to get un like how to unjack up like I, I was just so twisted up into the work and no balance anywhere else that I was like, I gotta change something. And that's when I started back to school. And I was like, well, first I'm gonna finish my bachelor's degree and then I'm gonna get out of here. And I finished my bachelor's degree and I thought, ugh, I don't really want to go work in the field. I, I got a business degree, which is helpful because it helps me learn how to like, you know, one day when I'm running an empire, I'm sure it'll be very valuable. Yeah. <laughs> but like I wasn't really feeling like I didn't want to just go work in the business world it, because part of what 911 is, is a sense of purpose. Like it's a calling and it's addictive. The adrenaline is addictive. And I just thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. So then I sat still and thought about it. And in the in the period of time where I was kind of pondering my next move, my grandma, who passed from a long battle with dementia, like, I just wanted to have a life like hers, where she woke up in the morning and she said, it's a great life. And it occurred to me one day in that period of holding still and figuring out what I was going to do next she said that to me i like after she had experienced like two decades worth of tragedy she really did believe it was a great life every minute that she was alive was a great life even the hard stuff and something about that got through to me so when she passed in 2017 i just thought well i'm gonna fix whatever's left of me that's still on the inside that hasn't been eaten by this job and by my choices. I'm going to fix what I got and do the best I can and make this as best a life as I can get. And it really was a series of small, tiny choices. So first it was drinking water. (laughs) Swear to God. Like it was cutting off the quad venti Americano with a splash of cream that I started my shift with and finishing off with a like, a cold brew that was in a can to make it through my shift. First, it was just cutting back on the caffeine and like 
cutting back on the trash food and cutting back on things and then replacing it with something healthier. And it was therapy and a lot of therapy and undoing some of the trauma history from my my upbringing. And then it became, you know, we need to do this more. We need everybody to do this. Everybody should get help. And I kind of had an awareness of this work is eating us. We have to we have to do things to protect ourselves against it. And it turns out I'm not alone in thinking that. There's a ton of research that says that emergency services, especially first responders, and I'm including dispatchers in that group because oh, we we handle the first wave. Yeah. We have trauma injury, period. And if we treat it well, and trauma injury manifests itself with shitty attitudes, <laughs> and we eat our own, and we we do things like isolate from friends and family, and drink a lot, mm-hmm. and do a lot of drugs, and do a lot of yelling, and doing a lot of ignoring relationships, and running away from intimacy, and perhaps ignoring our responsibilities and spending too much and keeping up with our friends at work. And suddenly we see this culture where there is real purpose and real value and real damage. And I thought I could help with that. And so in 2019, I applied to graduate school for a master's in clinical mental health counseling, got in, couldn't believe it. Like, I don't know why I couldn't believe it. My grades are fine. I, I mean, but in my head, I'm always thinking, well, if you're not first, you're, you're last. <laughs> so that was a lesson I've been working on. And then um, I started school. And it's just been, a, so far, I'm in my second year. And it's been a 12-month process of real broadening awareness of where, we're, where we've got problems and where we, can, where we know stuff works to help. And I'm that's my purpose going forward is I've got a couple years left as a dispatcher and then I want to go help first responders like balance this stuff out because if it can change in me, it can change in anybody. That is fantastic. Uh, one of the things that, um, having been involved with code four for a little while now, uh, I've been saying around the station Mm -hmm. is that we need more help there's, I said, there's, there's a lot of us and there's not very many of them Yeah. I'm speaking about therapists. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to add to the ranks. Yep. Thank and you very much. <laughs> my pleasure. It's, it's a, I've got a year left of classroom training and then I've got to do my internship and then I'm released to the world to try and help in about a year and a half. So there are lots of first responders. There's a sergeant in Seattle who's doing that. There's a, I think there's a couple of folks at County who are doing the same thing like lots of people who do this work and have experienced the only thing I can describe it as is when I started realizing I wasn't alone in that is so important yeah (laughs) like it's relief it's like coming up from underwater and taking a deep breath like above the surface and like colors are brighter and music sounds different and the sun is warmer and you're not constantly protecting against the next bad thing. And I know, so the, the, to wrap up all the way back to your first question, this question of how have I changed? I changed way to the negative side 
And now I've, I've changed almost in an equal direction on the positive. I know that if I journal, if I meditate, if I do yoga, if I work out, if I eat vegetables <laughs> more than anything else, then the stuff that gets to me from my work doesn't get to me as hard. And it leaves me open emotionally to be a good mom and a good partner and like a good friend. And it like the things that I was so, I was beginning to lose, almost evaporate my, my real self into this work that doesn't really, I, I jokingly say this and I say this as an independent person, not a representative of my agency, but like often agencies, police, fire, dispatch, they say words like family and we, we, we care about you. And that may be very true, but one must always remember that you're balancing that with your badge number and you're a butt in a seat and your, your value to your agency is in the work you can do. It's, it's in their best interest that we be healthy and happy because then we'll come to work more. But the person responsible for caring for my soul is not my agency. It's me. Yeah, that is huge. You know, um, before I, I left, uh, there were new groups coming in. We were hiring at an unprecedented rate because of uh, retirements. Mm -hmm. And I had finally figured this out for myself. And so when I would meet a group of, of new recruits, they would come by the station and they'd all be, you know, bright and shiny. <laughs> and I would say, they would, sometimes they would ask uh, any advice, you know, I say, hey, at the academy, keep your mouth shut, use both your ears, you know, mm -hmm. um, just get through it, you know, you'll be fine. Uh, I said, and, and take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. I said, the only person that's going to take care of you is you. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you can count on. Yeah. You know, and it, it is so true what you just said. Our community is littered with broken hearts of people who thought that their coworkers had their back. And they do have your back. Yeah, yeah. Because we're good people. Yeah. But when it's all the way down to the core, you have to have your back in a really healthy way. And asking asking somebody else to take care of you the way you would take care of you is a big ask. And it's probably something that's best limited to your partner, mm -hmm. not your coworkers. And when you spend more time at work than you do with your family, like I worked night shift and weekends. I still work weekends. <laughs> like I spend more time with the people, especially this last year when we're socially distancing and staying away from each other. Like I spend more time with my folks at, at work than I do with anybody else. So we need to build those relationships in healthy ways instead of like when I, and I can see the difference in just my agency over time as we've learned more, there is leadership at the top and at every level of management and all throughout our roster. That's like, no, we're going to be healthy. We're going to do this right. We've made tremendous changes. There is a committee of volunteers who focus on wellness. There is a, vibrant peer support group at my agency. I'm the co-lead of it, but all I really do is means I hold the clipboard and check off boxes and make sure we get training. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not hierarchical in any way. Yeah. 
we have a we just started in uh november we started a critical incident response team that we're about to we haven't gone through training for but basically to do inside our agency what debriefings do externally because we get invited to them sometimes but not always <laughs> and, and even when we're there we kind of feel like outsiders well so. and they are a work in progress i have totally to tell you, because, uh <laughs> You know, we just had one recently that really didn't go very well. The one from that stabbing? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, Code 4, we heard about it. Uh, yeah. I heard through Code 4 before I heard about it from my own agency that things didn't go well. That was in... I've heard from multiple people that that was the worst call they've ever been on. Experienced operators, people who've done this a long time. It was yeah. the worst thing that they've ever experienced. And this, the critical incident response piece is, it's good to have. It's about 5% of the need for what it is that we're talking about. It's the low frequency, high urgency things that it's good to have a structure in place for that. And I think our CERT team could be helpful for that at other agencies because sometimes it's good to have external people come in so the people who experienced it don't have to then manage it. But protecting responders and protecting folks in the line of this type of trauma really comes in shifting the culture that we live in. And for me, that was all internal. Like, fuck this and fuck that guy and screw you and you're a jerk. I really stopped doing that in the comm room. Not because someone told me to, because if someone told me to, I would have done it louder. And I really love being told what to do. It's great. Oh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> As a culture, we really respond to that well. Mm -hmm. That's why all this training that someone hands you is like, yeah, give me more of that. No, <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> but it was really about I didn't want anyone else in that room to carry anything of mine. I didn't want anybody else saying to me bitch about something that wasn't going to change. I didn't want to put it on anyone else. And I had to figure out, like, I have a couple of very, very favorite um authors and teachers and stuff. And Richard Rohr is one. He's a um, Franciscan uh, priest. He, he runs a, a teaching center out of New Mexico. And he wrote this book called Falling Upward, which is really the, the kind of the deconstruction of like the lifespan of two halves. Like there's your childhood where you're constructed by rules and structure, which is what kids need. And then something happens in your adolescence or middle or early adulthood that deconstructs it. It's usually something traumatic or great love or great suffering. And it opens up this portal to change. And you then have to go forward into your adult life, reconstructing with the things that are valuable to you to go forward. For me, 2017 was that deconstruction fully. It had been a process over 10 to 15 years, but truly it was like this before and after moment. And I thought, I'm going to take everything that's valuable and put it to good use. And I'm going to burn the rest in the pile. Like I'm not going to wait. And I shifted. And the trouble with shifting is not everybody around you knows you're shifting. So some of the relationships in your life don't want to go with you. And some do. And it's a, it's the same in a workplace when you shift who you are. I'm not a safe person to tell a shitty joke to. I'm not someone you want to gossip with because I'll shut you down. I'm not somebody you want to tell a story to that you're like, don't tell anybody. Like, uh -huh. I'm not that girl. 
like I wasn't really ever, but I didn't have the strength to be like, stop. I'm not interested in hearing what you say. That boundary really alienated what I thought were long-term reliable friendships. And I think that's something that we don't talk about in our first responder life is like when we change and get healthier, some people behind you are really uninterested (laughs) in getting, because they like what they're doing and they don't want to make a change. And it's not really about them. Like I'm, you can do whatever you want. Like it's, you do you, it's fine. But like, I have to do something different for me. Yeah. You have to do what you need to do to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to teach my daughter like what it means to be healthy and model it, which is a big ask because I'm, I was pretty unhealthy. A lot of like, I, I drank way, I, I drank probably four times a week, which is way north of healthy. Not, but I didn't think of myself as an alcoholic because I, I, when I was like, I should stop doing that. So I stopped. Like, I don't think I had an issue with ceasing alcohol Mm -hmm. as much, but it was a lot. And when you start looking at the quantities and you're like, wow, that might be why you're sleeping like trash. Maybe you should ease off on that. And it's like, there's all these habits that are cultural. Like when's the last time you went to a firefighter barbecue and no one was drinking? (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't happen. Right? It's the same in help. It's all helping professionals. Like we all have the same stuff and common coping. And it's a radical act to be different. And people feel judged by it sometimes, even though you're just trying to take care of you. So Karina and I were just taking a break and uh, she was saying some things that I think would be really important for people to hear because I didn't know any of this. So would you, would you say that again? Sure. During the break, we were talking about like various stupid injuries we have (laughs) and I've got, we have matching shoulder injuries and I've got a bunch of stuff from not being smart about snowboarding on a glacier. And what happens when you do that is when you tear your shoulder and you can't actually lift your arm and it's terrible and recovery is awful. But part of that is when we don't rehab our injuries, your body gives out on you eventually. And it it makes you, it forces you to deal with it. I didn't rehab my right shoulder, but I did my left, which means I no longer can hit a volleyball because I didn't rehab my right shoulder. The same thing happens with your mind and your trauma. And if you don't deal with your stuff, it will deal with you. And that means that your relationships will shift. That means that you can end up repeating the same cycle with the same stuff and the same problems over and over and over again. And why that matters is like dispatchers aren't considered first responders at a federal level. We aren't, we don't get to do 20 years of service and then retire. We don't get to draw on our pension until we're in our 60s, which means that we don't have a safety net for a professional safety net. You have to perform to standard or you do not meet standards. If you do not meet standards and you cannot catch up, you don't have a place. You don't get to work there anymore. And that means that we don't get to retire. You have to keep doing it. You have to keep doing something that injures you. So you have to build your self-strength. Otherwise, you'll get off the job and die. 
and it sounds really morbid to say it like that, but it's true. There is actual statistics about people who retire, especially police and firefighters. They don't study dispatchers for this because, again, our classification. But there's a huge number of folks who finish their career and then they step off the job and they are hit with heart st- a heart attack, lung stuff. They've been smoking 20 years. They've got fire smoke exposure. They have a, which is considered line of duty injury, but your mental injury, the the vicarious trauma that you absorb is not. And for us, if you don't take protective action to care for your body and your mind, it will deal with you. Like the symptoms of vicarious trauma, insomnia, I've got it. Chronic fatigue, got it. PTSD, diagnosed with it, anxiety, diagnosed with it. Like, and for me to say that out loud on a podcast 20 years ago, it it wouldn't happen. Right. Like, we don't talk about what it is that the injury, the impact of the injury. In order to survive this, in order to survive something that means so much to so many of us, you have to take care of your body and your mind. And it's not like, a suggestion. It's an ethical mandate. Ethically, we have to take care of the people who do this work. It's the, it's the right thing to do. And it's also something we can measure that if we're not doing it, we can for sure predict that at least eight in 10 of us will have at least burnout. And burnout has a really bad impact on everybody else. One in four of us will have PTSD. That's just dispatchers. That's not the first responders who see it. We hear the worst. There is nothing in the world at all. There's there's only one time I've ever heard this, and it's this otherworldly primal sound that someone makes when they discover someone they love has died Mm -hmm. suddenly. Mm -hmm. It has happened. I've been on the phone. I've been on the radio listening into the phone call. So the call receiver doesn't have to update me. I can just listen to what's happening and update the people driving there where someone's begging their person to stay. Please stay. Please don't die. Please stay. Please don't die. Over and over again, over a career, Mm -hmm. hearing that can be, it can shift your brain. So it's really important to talk to people about it. You have to talk to someone, know that you're not by yourself in it. And if you don't, it will just keep you awake at night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling emotional sitting here listening that. to that. Um, because, yeah, you, you hit it on the head. Uh, to see it and hear it. Uh, it's, you know, it's, and again, it's that we do a, a job that where there's a lot of abnormalities. Mm-hmm. It's not normal. No. Nope. Yet we're just normal people. But it's our Tuesday. Yeah. It's. Yeah. Well, and it could happen tomorrow and mm-hmm. the next day. Yep. And it often does. It will. Yeah. So wow. it's my, what I'm taking, what I have left of me, what I had left of me, I built my whole life in different directions away from trauma. And it's a, a great feeling to finally be in a place of stability and strength. The strength that was mine all along, I didn't really see it, but it, it is. I'm going to take what I have and 
give it to the people who've done this work and hopefully share that their strength is within them as well. You can be resilient to some of this stuff. You can bounce back. You don't have to be angry all the time. You don't have to be mad at your spouse. You don't have to be yelling at your kids. It doesn't have to be like that. You don't have to be drunk on Friday. You don't have to be high on Saturday. You can choose something different. And lots of people have done it, but you don't know it because we don't talk about it. So what I'm going to do going forward is, unfortunately for all the people I work with, I'm going (laughs) to rabble rouse as hard as I can to like make wellness our cultural standard, at least at my agency, and then use whatever influence I can and in whatever direction I can to make it something that other people feel the same level of support just by running into me. Know that I'm an ally. Know that you can trust me to like get you to the right resources. Code 4 is great for that. I love I love the honor of what it means to be present when someone finally makes a choice to talk to somebody. It's really a big deal. And it should be considered as brave as any other scary thing that we do. Yeah. Like owning up to the, like being vulnerable about who we are and that this is not, that you're not okay. And you're going to take a step to like sort it out. It's really important. Oh boy. It's huge. And you know, like Steve said something about, you know, the hardest thing he ever did and all the things he's done, it was the hardest thing he's ever done. And Mm -hmm. That is so true. Um, did you notice that, uh, do you get those emails about when the calls come in or are you not mm-hmm. getting them? There was a 50 minute call yesterday and mm-hmm. there was a 40 minute call at three in the morning. That's somebody talking to somebody yeah. and they were different numbers. I checked. That's so cool. I know. Uh, it, somebody's on the other end. So anybody listening again, uh, when you call code four, you're going to get somebody who's going to kind of know what you're talking about. I mean, not kind of, we know. And we're in our house. Like we're just sitting here, like the call gets forwarded to our phones. So I, when I'm on call for code four, I'm home that day. I don't really have any plans to leave the house. And I just have like, you know, my resource set, like my resource guides all ready to go. But it's really just, you can come talk to us and there's nothing that you can say that's something we haven't seen, heard or experienced. Yeah, There's nothing shocking at all like nothing shocks me like it's okay you can be 100 ways of jacked up you can be drunk it's probably like helpful to have a sober person writing down the phone numbers if you need but yeah exactly (laughs) well and (laughs) that's the truth um yeah it's somebody uh on the other end who first of all you can feel you're not alone Mm -hmm. so what you said earlier about not being alone I think a lot of people, when you're, when you get to that place, especially if it snuck up on you, like you said, Oh, it totally did. You feel alone. You think I'm the only one that feels this way. How come she can handle it and I can't? I used to think that at work all the time that there were, I'd go, why can't I be like them? Why can't, it seems like things just roll off their backs. Yeah. We did have one person that was so oblivious to what he was doing that it rolled off his back. But I kind of thought I wished I was more like that, you know? I wished I I have found myself in many instances over the years wishing I didn't understand the why of the what like I wish I didn't understand that you're talking like that that way to that person 
because you're traumatized. I wish I didn't know so I could just be instantly mad at you and like ignore your need. Like I didn't actually wish that. I, I mean, like, but sometimes knowing is a burden. Yes. Knowing the why sometimes can be a heavy backpack. So I had to learn as I learned more and more about mental health stuff. I had to learn what's mine to carry and what's my, what isn't. And how do you have empathy with somebody and not hold on to all of their stuff? So if someone comes and talks to me about, I'm going to make something up, a problem in their marriage, how do I hold on to being present with them and really like letting them know that I'm here right now to listen? And then in an hour when I'm not with them, releasing that. Mm -hmm. And there's some techniques you can use. One of them is to just... Oftentimes I go outside and breathe a little bit after I have a pretty intense conversation and I just kind of like do some basic box breathing where you hold it, like you breathe in for four, hold it for four, breathe out for four, repeat that type of stuff. And it's sort of like just releasing it out into the atmosphere. Like, yep, that was that moment we were together in that moment. I, I, gave what I was capable of giving and now I'm going to let them go be. And if they want to come back and talk to me, they can do it again, but I'm not going to be the person who is like forcing somebody toward like following up. Like I'm not your therapist. I'm your peer. Yeah. So and that's the other thing. We're not therapists. So even when I am one and I'll be about a year and a half, I like, I don't do therapy with friends. So it's mostly just being present. Well, I think it's going to be fantastic to have you in the ranks. Um, <laughs> yeah, to add to the number because again, there's so far many more of us. Right, <laughs> we need more <laughs> on that end. Yeah, like in the therapy groups or therapist groups I'm in, both a student member and then just like social media, you can join those types of things. They're slammed, busy. They're like mental health folks. Are the pandemic has really turned it up to 11. So it's, it's a good thing to be joining now, especially as even departments are putting people in house, which I think is a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. Like putting a mental health person who's not in the chain of command, but present, which means you don't have to take an hour plus find of someone plus get your insurance sorted and plus pay for it. And instead it's just like there. And you can go talk to them if you need. That's brilliant. That is. I know. One day. We'll see what yeah. happens. All right. <laughs> Karina, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm glad to have done it. Thank All you right. for having me. Whatever, 25, you said it. Code 4. Code 4, Thank you to Robert Elliott, Erica Voyeur, and Jim Gould for their voices and help with the podcast intro. The music heard is Wah Game Loop by Kevin McLeod. You can find it on the web at incompetech.filmmusic.io slash song slash 4602-wa-game-loop. And the license is at filmmusic.io slash standard-license. All of the music information is posted in the episode description. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is JR signing out.